content warning. This podcast contains discussions about suicide. Listeners, please be advised. Welcome, everybody, to the Literally Pixels podcast, the offshoot bonus episode of the Literal Pixel podcast. I am your host, John, and with me is always my dear friend and beloved co-host, Nick. Nick, how's it going? Hi, John. I'm a little drunk. That's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> I, I like to think of these as our episodes after dark. Okay. Yeah, this is this is the uh this is the little, you know, just a little extra something something, you know. Oh yeah. Fill in those gaps. This is where we get all loosey goosey. And we talk about video games. In particular, we talk about text-based adventure games. Nick and I have been going through the entirety of the Infocom series uh of games sequentially from the 1980s. And we uh have already talked about the Zork trilogy. Now, we have what do we have tonight, Nick? Uh, tonight we have Deadline, which is technically the third of the Infocom games, but we cheated yeah. and did Zork one through three first. <laughs> yes, I mean it came out the same year as Zork three, just a couple months earlier, so it's not that big of a deal. And you and I were very interested in getting Zork through because you and I were and still are in love with the Zork games. I think very much so. Um, so this game was written by Mark Blank uh, as Solo. And uh, was released in 1982. Now, uh, the game is a wonderful crime thriller. And to commemorate this, we have a new sponsor tonight, Nick. Oh, yeah. The the Lakeville, Connecticut Police Department. Let's get to the ad copy. Do you have a millionaire relative murdered under suspicious circumstances? 
Then come on down to the Lakeville, Connecticut Police Department, where our fine assortment of investigators work to help you get to the bottom of the nefarious deeds. Want to know who stole your family's will? We will help you. Do you have mysterious holes in your rose gardens outside the scene of the crime? We will dig out all the clues for you. The Lakeville, Connecticut Police Department is here to serve the needs of you and your wealthy white American families. Lakeville, where the sun shines. That was beautiful, Nick. Yeah, thank thank you, uh, the police, for, for protecting people who look like John and myself. <laughs> oh, and God. not much else. No. <laughs> what? A, a cab. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, I don't know. We're not a controversial podcast, John, says the person who recently pulled up Edward Said. This is true. So yeah, folks, what makes Deadline so interesting is Deadline is, uh, like we said before, a crime thriller. You're an investigator investigating a murder under suspicious circumstances. The um, the head of this uh, wealthy family and you know entrepreneur humanitarian Marshall Robner was found dead in his library. Mm-hmm. No foul play was detected, but because of his wealth and the fact that there are some small inconsistencies and things that might be worrisome about his death. It might be a little, you know, sketch. Uh, it, it causes an investigation to happen. So you are called in to come in and talk to people. Now, this was the first game to come with feelies. So it in, it included a, interviews with all of the suspects involved and crime reports, uh, analysis of the, the body, the autopsy as well as a chemical analysis to see if he was drugged, those sorts of things. And uh, it was fun to have. Um, but we, we got a chance to play this. It was the fourth game that we played out of the Infocom games. And I loved it, Nick. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on uh, Deadline? I, I think mine are a little more mixed. But before we get into specifically my opinions about it, this is the first, A, this is the first non-Zork game that Infocom has put out. This is true. Uh, so this is the first one. And, and like, I have a, a certain soft spot now in my uh, very broken heart <laughs> for Zork. Um, so there's that. Uh, also, the feelies um, are... So it's the first instance of feelies, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's also the... Um, these feelies aren't copyright protection in the way that feelies later on in the Infocom series are. In reality, Nick, uh, I would say that uh, a bulk of the Infocom feelies were... I mean, this is still technically copy protection because there's information in it that is essential to solving the crime. That is so true? Te- technically, I yes. think, Yeah, so I, I, I suppose, but, like, there's nothing impeding you. So we've already played the next Infocom game where yeah. actively it would be almost impossible... To play the game without the feelies. Yeah, this is true. Where it is technically not impossible to play Deadline without it, even if it is difficult. Because there's a lot of really important information that the feelies provide you. There's Um, one particular piece of information, though, that you would never even be able to guess if you didn't have the feelies. Yeah, that is true. Um, So I, I guess it is sort of copy protection, even if it's... I don't know. It's weaker. It wasn't intended to, right? It wasn't yeah. intended to be copy protection at that point, I don't think. Uh, but it was something to, to help 
the the feelies were really to add value to, uh, to give people incentive to purchase these things but also to help it get out of the plastic bag uh you know display they were in just little plastic baggies back in the day and so to, to really give it something that gave more value to the customer and it's, it's just a lot of fun i love i love the feelies very much so, yeah but. i'm really sad that you and i have yet to feel a feely one of oh. these days you and i gotta touch something i want that glow in the dark purple rock from wishbringer i've oh. been looking I've legitimately been looking on eBay for that rock. It's expensive. <laughs> it's really freaking expensive. I've been looking for an idiot who doesn't know what they have. <laughs> That's not going to happen. No. I know, but like, God, my heart wants it to. Um, yeah. Because you know me. I'm a very tactile person. It's the reason why my library is exploding right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, I have to well, touch things. And you, you have a thing literally called feelies, and they've been introduced, and now I want to touch them. And I can't. So let's let's talk about the style of this in contrast to something like Zork, right? Uh, Zork is fantastical. It's very puzzle oriented, right? A lot of logic puzzles, a lot of play in words to solve puzzles, and using the fantastical nature to really weave some very enchanting and interesting, you know, uh, set pieces and and puzzles to solve. Deadline yeah. is very much the antithesis of this, but not in a bad way. At least for me, not in a bad way. Uh, it's set in the real world, bound by real world rules, and it takes place uh, entirely in a single location in a mansion, uh, the the scene of the crime, right? And the, the grounds surrounding it. There's no puzzles like Zork. It is investigative by nature in, in the most literal sense, where you, you have... Uh, you have pieces of information. You have them. You can analyze them for clues, fingerprint them for clues, those sorts of things, and use them as evidences to confront people. Uh, but even more importantly, is that this game plays akin to something like what you would see in in a game like Majora's Mask, The Legend of Zelda: Majora's Mask on the Nintendo sixty four. You have a time. You have twelve hours to solve this crime. And they, the people in it, they have schedules, they move around, they do things, they talk to people. Uh, certain events that are crucial to understanding the crime happen at very specific times. And so you're spending a lot of time uh, exploring the environment, but more importantly, observing people and questioning them. And that is something that is dramatically missing in a large amount of Infocom games, even later in their life. There's not a lot of a lot of dialogue and NPC interaction uh, at the level with which Deadline does. And I think that that, that, that is a, a wonderful showcase. I think it's it's Infocom trying to show people that uh, the engine can, that their, their engine for creating these games was robust enough to be able to have complex NPC interactions, to have this, these schedules and uh, that sort of thing. I think that it was a great showcase for that but um, I don't know. How did you feel, Nick? So I, I feel like I was a little frustrated by it in that, in, in part, this might be slightly unfair because of how you and I experienced just the Infocom, Infocom games in general up to this point. Uh, we have, you know, done them pretty much like one a week or one or uh, one every other week, which these are coming out, you know, every few years. Uh, but because you and I are, in, we are encountering them so quickly, 
it is the incentives of the Zork game are very different than the incentives of the Deadline game, which made it difficult for me to transition. Mm-hmm. Because there is, like, every bit of information that Zork provides you is vital. When it gets verbose, you're like, okay, I need to pay attention. This is important. I I need to pay attention. And that was something I really enjoyed, as looking at the details that Zork would provide you, and then trying to get into the headspace of the person writing those clues... And being like, okay, this is what they want me to do. Like, that level of empathy between the the player and the programmer was something I really enjoyed in Zorik. And that's there in Deadline, but not everything matters. And sorting out what matters is really is a really big component of the game. But I think both you and I, especially initially in our first in our first like four hours of the game, we're tripped up by this because we're looking in linen closets. We were looking in just various places that didn't matter. And that makes sense because in the real world, the linen closets probably don't matter for the murder. But like we were, we were like, there are linen closets. They are here. They must do something. Something must be hidden. Yeah. There must be some information in this linen closet that you and I looked and we looked and we looked at multiple times and we were like, ah, why won't these linen closets give us their secrets? And there just weren't any. And that's fine, but it really soured my experience. And I I think part of the reason it soured my experience is because of the Zork games. Because those are the things that I, my first foray into interactive fiction and text-based adventure games in general, is Zork. And that's pretty much true. There are only a few examples in Zork where they go into, like, they get very verbose, and it doesn't matter. And that's the granite wall, gosh darn it. The granite walls, exactly. What's interesting, Nick, (laughs) we're going to bring up, that's our rogues hour for text adventure games, the granite walls. (laughs) The granite wall. Um, But no, you, you bring up a really interesting point, right? And we were talking about this earlier about um, how in Zork, typically when they describe something, it is useful. It's useful information, a hint or a clue to something, or a very vital tool that you need in order to understand how to approach those puzzles. And here, there's a much larger emphasis on world building and believability. Right? Yeah. They wanted the place to feel like it was a living place. And I think that's probably the most important thing to to draw from the design of Deadline was that they wanted to make this place feel real to players. Uh, they, they're locations that are not necessary in the slightest, like the linen closets, certain bathrooms and bedrooms, uh, these things that aren't so important for you to explore, but help... And also commands as well, which we'll get into, that that help engage the player and help them be immersed in the world. And I thought that that was interesting, but because we were trained on Zorik, it really did affect our mindset. Because Mm -hmm. we were playing a different style of adventure game. We were playing a different style of adventure game with the same... with, With mostly the same tools. Like, there are different commands, but, like, it, it looks the same. Like, it, it just, it feels the same. It's not like we were uh, going from a 2D platformer to a 3D platformer and then trying to apply the same reasoning to a 3D platformer. We went from one 2D platformer 
to a similar 2D platformer, uh, tried to apply the same reasoning, and then found that that reasoning did not work anymore. Well, it's and a it similar was... thing like playing a Mario game, right? You're playing the original yeah. Super Mario Brothers, and the goal is just to get to the end of the level, the flagpole, the finish. And then yeah. you start playing a, a game like a <clears throat> a Western platformer, like a Jill of the Jungle or something, which you have no context for what that means. But those yeah. were ones where you had to go all around the environment in every direction to collect things to then get to the end or to open up the end that you need to go to, which you also have to find and discover. Is right? that distinct from like a Castlevania style game? Like a Metrovania? Um, well, the Metroidvanias are a little different. I, I guess you could make that distinction as well. The difference between a Super Mario Brothers and a Metroidvania, right? They're both platformers. They both have these action elements to them. But there's a different way that the, the game worlds are designed on a core mechanical level. And that's the case. The, the tools are the same, but how they use those tools are drastically different because zork doesn't have npcs to interact with but uh or not very much at least and deadline is almost entirely npc interactions you're watching them go through their schedule you're showing them clues you're accusing them of things asking them questions those sorts of things that were really vital to understanding how the game plays and zork doesn't have any of that that, I wouldn't. I would disagree with that a little bit because in like Zork Two, following the princess matters, and yeah. seeing how the the space changes after the princess does something matters. Like uh, when she leaves the rose behind, uh, that cued us into, and also that the unicorn was gone. So there were um, changes that occurred with the NPCs that would key you into how a puzzle worked, but you. The I, I, I agree that the character interaction matters a heck of a lot more in Deadline and is the meat of the game where it isn't in Zork. In Zork, interacting with and reading NPCs matters far less than solving the puzzle, which sometimes involves like seeing the behavior in NPC, but mostly um, involves you know finding the key to a lock. There, there's only one, I, I would say in Deadline, there's only really one lock and one key. There, there aren't puzzles to solve so much as there are observations to be made, which is the, the mental, the, the, that is the mental switch that you have to make that is very unclear that that is what you're supposed to be doing until you've spent some time doing it, which is, which was really frustrating, especially initially, because you had already you already have experience with the genre. Uh, and then the genre, like, it, it, part of what I'm complaining about is a really silly thing. <laughs> what I'm complaining about is that, like, this genre has depth. And I'm like, how dare it be able to do other <laughs> things? Screw it for being able to be flexible. But um, that was just, it was hard to get my mind into the place that it needed to be for me to solve the problem. And that is my complaint. What I think happened, Nick, for you is just that, again, you were being introduced to this style of game for the very first time in Zork. I mean, that was your first, you know. For and me, I I've loved had, it. Yeah, I've had exposure with other text-based adventure games, and uh, I've completed, you know, a couple of them. And so I have had a variety of different, you know, approaches to how the genre works. 
Um, and of course, that, that gaming experience of trying to understand what the developer wants you to do, how they want you to interact with that world, is a really good tool set to have that a lot of people, they haven't learned that. That is a, that is a thing that you have to, it's like a muscle. And I think at that point, you weren't quite keyed in on that. Um, and I think that as we play along with these, you're going to recognize those different styles and the different expectations. Yeah. Cause there's going to be more murder mysteries. And I do think that you're going to excel with those or better understand them once you have, um, once you have this under your belt. Right. Uh, so once we've beaten this one, now you, you have that style in your brain now, so you can approach it when it pops up. And I think, and as we get better with adventure games and text adventure games in general, you'll start to to key in on those things from the get-go without having previous exposure because you now have such a broad ar array of different tools under your belt now on how to interact with the software. Yeah, so something I really miss, I think, in Deadline uh, that Zork does very well is there's this lovely, I forget who the author of the essay is, but it's like the life ways of the Nakarema. It's this anthropological paper that I think I'm going to pull a lot when we are talking about these sorts of games. Uh, because what it does, what it illustrates to people, is that if you do an ethnography um, from an edict perspective, from an outsider's perspective, it's really easy to make things feel foreign. Uh, but The Lifeways of the Nakarema is a story written by an American person about America, because Nakarema is just American backwards. Like, it, it talks about brushing one's teeth, but it, it does it in a way that is very strange, and in a way that we wouldn't think of it. But when you look back and you understand what they're trying to communicate, yeah, no, they're talking about brushing your teeth. That is what they're describing. So something that I think the Zork uh, video games do very well is that they take foreign things... They take... Excuse me. They take things that we're familiar with and make them foreign. But that isn't here because that's not the point of the game. And again, I'm, I, I have very unfair criticisms because that's not what the game is trying to do. But I just, I loved that of Zork and I missed that in Deadline. The personal twinges, I think that's what the big thing is, is that with Zork, there's such a variety of different style of puzzles and they play with words. They, they, they use the, the medium of text adventure games uh, in novel and interesting ways because we don't have those graphics to help visualize. And so they utilize even just the words that they they use to describe something to create a puzzle in and of itself. And uh, Deadline is, again, as you said, is exactly not that. It is absolutely a, uh, a investigation and it, it is a talking game. You, you are a more passive observer and you are a an interactor with people and you're talking and asking questions. And that seems to be the goal. Yeah, it, it, and that's sensible. I think it, so it has a very emic perspective where that is, you know, a, a, a in-group perspective, which makes sense because we are in-group. That is, we are a detective in this world. So that yeah. makes sense that we see things through the eyes of someone who you know, could make sense of them. Yeah. So that isn't a gripe. It's just a thing that I miss because I was so trained to look for it. Yeah, exactly. And it's also something you loved. That is a, that is a thing that you enjoyed. Yeah. And having it missing does make you then 
fe- make you feel like you're not enjoying it as much. Yeah. Th- there, there was also a really eerie thing that you and I both felt um, because we had uh, interacted with a very different piece of media before we interacted with this. Yes. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on that? Hold on. Oh, Oh God, no! We'll get to that in the spoilers. I think, or at least the post spoilers. I think that that's a really great thing. So yeah, uh, we had watched the movie *Knives Out* uh, by Ryan Johnson and found a lot of parallels, which I think we're going to get into in the spoiler zone. I want to want to. We're going to get into that right now, but I want to ask Nick this very important question: Is that like in the grand scheme of things, do you feel that this is um, a good game or not? How do you feel about this overall deadline? So I honestly think that all of the Infocom games thus far are good. Yeah. There are some that I like more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ones that I don't... Uh, so I, I think of the four that we've discussed thus far, I think it's toward... It's second to last. So for me, I, I'm a New Hope kind of guy. So yeah. Zork 1, Zork 2. Then I would say Deadline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so weirdly, I like them in the order that they were published. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Zork 3. Uh, that that is the order that I would place them in, um, in my mind. Zork three is a little frustrating um, for reasons that we discussed in the last uh, podcast. Um, that deadline I think does something very interesting um, that I enjoy, but I my heart my heart is with the Zork games, the Zork games, and like th- something that I found really interesting about Deadline in general is that we're seeing a difference in game philosophy between Mark Blank and uh, Dave Liebling. Uh, And I think I'm more of a Dave Liebling stan than I am a Mark Blank stan. I'm more of the goofball, Gru jokes. I like that. That's the thing that I enjoy (laughs) about these things. You bring up an amazing point, Nick, and I think that this bears uh, emphasis. You talk about two different design philosophies. And in reality, it's hard. It is actually genuinely hard to make a true comparison of Deadline Mm -hmm. to Zork. They are two very different pieces of software. Um, And while the medium may be the same of using just text only and using similar commands, the, the method within which you navigate this world, you interrogate these people, and you use these specialized commands to uh, have a better understanding of the crime itself and who did it, these things uh, essentially make it an apples, you know, to to carrots comparison. Yeah, it's not even an apple to oranges. (laughs) I don't ever got the apples to oranges comparison, by the way. They're both fruit, so you can make a comparison. Yeah, yeah, it it is a silly idiomatic expression. That's fair. Because apples are, are hard, you can bite into them, right? They're crisp. Oranges are soft, but much more juicy. Like, so what, and you have to peel them. You can peel an apple, but you don't have to. So what, what are you comparing there? Why are they so drastically different? They're not. <laughs> They're both fruit. They both grow on trees. Like, the, they both serve the same biological function. Yeah, they both have vitamin C. Like, I don't understand. That's what that drives me crazy. Anyways, um, but they're, they're two very different games, and it's hard for me to actually be like, well, Deadline is better than Zork. I feel they're two drastically different things. Uh, how much I like them is starting to change more and more as I reflect on the game itself. And I would probably rank these games as Zork 2, Deadline, 
Zork one, Zork three. Oh, out of my heart. I'm not going to fight you there because that's very personal. But this isn't like our previous podcast where I would fight you to the death. Because <laughs> this one is there is there is something about it that that struck a chord with me on a very very primordial level uh, that elicited a strong emotional response that none of the Zork games did. And we'll get to that into the spoiler zone. But um, with like Zork 2, I just felt that the puzzles were really brilliantly designed, uh, except for one. And I just had f- more fun. Zork 2 is where I had the most fun. I really f- felt something genuine in Deadline that I did not expect to feel. And it was <clears throat> it was a very odd feeling because I was not expecting it this early on in Infocom's life. Um, of its development cycle. Yeah, I, I think for me, I mostly felt frustrated until like... So part of my assessment of the quality of this game is... So the first two-thirds of our playthrough was bewilderment. Yeah. You get in your sea legs. Well, yeah, but like the second you get your sea legs, everything clicks and then it's done. So it's yeah. like for two thirds of the game, I'm confused. And then for the last third, it's like, oh, I solved it. Which is very different than Zork, which like has these breadcrumbs of bewilderment solved, bewilderment solved, bewilderment solved. That didn't happen with this game. It was, what the hell is happening? I don't understand. It was 50-50 for you because it was the first stream... We 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 were trying to figure it out. We had a bit of a sense, and our stream ended with us being like, "I don't know, I don't know what to do, <laughs> how to solve this." And then like overnight, I'm like sitting there thinking about it, and then like the next morning we talked about it, and I was like, oh, "You know, like, we didn't use these commands. This is what we need to do to progress." And once we had that, it we started to understand what the game wanted us to do. And then it started to just spiral out of control. Yeah, I, I will say that, like, I, I think part of my... So I think potentially the proportion of bewilderment to puzzle solving is the same. But for Deadline, it's all in the beginning. That's when you're confused. Like, you can easily be lost. And we almost were. Like, you and I almost gave up, and we're like, we just got to look stuff up, because we just, we don't know what to do. And then things sort of snapped into place as you and I discussed it outside of the stream. But with Zork, it's, you have individual nuggets that if, like, something is, you're beating your head against a wall, and it doesn't make sense, and you're just bloody and frustrated... You go, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go look at this other thing. And eventually you'll find something that makes sense. And then you solve it. And then you solve that. And then you come back to that thing that you pounding your head against the wall. And then you can solve that. You've had enough time to ruminate. Uh, the linear yeah. nature of Deadline it does make it a little more difficult. Uh, because you had these, just, these story gates. And with like Zorik, yeah, you come across a tough puzzle. And you're like, I'll ah, come back to this one. I don't know if I have all the tools. I, d- I don't know how to approach this puzzle. We'll come back to it and look at something else because there's more to look at at that point. Um, and yeah, with Deadline, you're right that the, the puzzles 
are pretty linear. The the observations are pretty linear. I wouldn't even say that there are puzzles. Like, I mean, there are things that you solve along the way, but I mean, ultimately, there's one puzzle. And no, there's a couple. If you don't solve... Yeah, I mean, there's... We'll get into it. Why don't we get yeah. into it? Let's get into it. Let's just rev it up. Let's get into the spoiler zone. Ready? We, we have no idea how to do this because it's a different genre podcast. I know, like, like where do you even put the key in, in this thing? Like, I, don't, I don't even uh, understand. It's a moped where the other one is more like a... I know. Spoiler. Hi. We're in the spoiler section of the podcast. It, it is nice. It, it's it's pretty much the same as the not spoiler section. Exactly. Except we're going to talk about puzzles and we're going to talk about a step by step of the plot, right? Let's 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 get into the characters here because we didn't even talk about the characters. That is true. <laughs> Which is so funny. I was like the entire time, like we should talk about the characters. I'm like, yeah, but we're, we're doing great right now. Let's just wait. That's <laughs> like, oh, okay, we're in the spoiler zone now. Let's talk about the characters. Yeah, so the the person whose murder we're trying to solve, that is uh, Mr. Robner or Marshall Robner, uh, who is a wealthy businessman of uh, Robner Co. Is that the company, John? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I think it was, yeah, Robner Co. is what it is, yeah. Yeah, and he has died presumably from suicide. Uh, he, a lot of his prescription medication had been taken uh, with the tea, and that is the... That is the set assumption that we have that we're trying to disprove. He was put, uh, he was in his library late at night uh, doing work and really uh, under pressure because his company was going to be uh, merging and being sold to another company and they'd merge together and him not wanting that to happen. So he was working super late. He got his tea at around 11 o'clock at night and his antidepressant medication. And the next day he was found dead. Uh, of suicide. Yeah, and he was known to be a very reclusive, sort of Abraham Lincoln-style person, very depressive, not necessarily... Um, uh, no one necessarily suspected him of being suicidal, but definitely prone to depressive episodes, which would warrant... Like, no one was shocked that he killed himself, but no one suspected that he was imminently going to commit suicide. Yeah. That sort of person. Yeah. That is a possibility. They saw the turn. They saw him getting more and more depressed, but they didn't think that suicide would be on the table. So then we have his wife, uh, Mrs. Robner or Leslie Robner, uh, who is the life of the party. She is very social where her partner is very reclusive. Uh, she wants to hang out with other people and also have a very deep interpersonal connection with her husband, which, as far as we can tell in the game, is not um, received, uh, is not... Reciprocated? It reciprocated. There we are. Uh, and we learn over the course of the game that, in fact, she's having an affair. And we learn this through two different uh, puzzles. Yeah, one is a puzzle. Yeah, one is a puzzle, Nick. You say there was only one puzzle. Yeah, so there's uh, the first one, which isn't a puzzle. It's just that she receives a letter uh, that we asked to see um, where somebody, uh, a Simon fellow, uh, seems to be speaking in too personal of terms. He is talking about how, you know, he's happy that 
you know, she's still in the will and, and things like that. But, like, he, he's talking in a way that is weird for a friend. Um, and that keyed us in. I mean, I was already suspicious that there was an affair because genre savvy. Um, but uh, it, it keyed me in at least a little bit more that there was an affair. And then there's a phone that goes off. This is a puzzle. This is a legitimate puzzle. There's a phone that goes off. Um, so a man answers... Uh, and Miss Robner runs upstairs to pick up the phone, which also is a really interesting puzzle because it requires you to be aware of a party line. Like it requires you to know how old phones work, which in the 1980s wouldn't have been a thing that they thought about. But I, I like you and I were aware of it because I think we were on like the latter end of I that phenomenon. Like you, you were the latter end. For me, that was my bread and butter. Yeah, um, but I, I still, like, there was a world uh, where I lived in where if you called on a phone, the internet wouldn't work. Yeah, that's true. So, like, we're keyed into this where I feel like in the future this game is going to get continually more difficult. As people are like, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do when she picks up the phone? <laughs> like, well, so, so no, with with the Mrs. Robner phone puzzle, no, she there's a phone call. She She picks up the phone downstairs, and she's like... Oh, it, it was nobody. But even though if you listen in on the conversation, she says, like, I'll have to call you back. Uh, and you, you can ask her, like, what was that about? And she's like, it, it was no one. And then she immediately runs to her room to yes. make a phone call. If you stay there, she will she will push you out and be like, go away, you know? And you, no. you can't hear. But if you go to another room where there's a phone, you can pick it up and listen to the conversation between her and her uh, her lover, who are very much like, you know, what do we do now? Like, what's the next step for us? You know, since he's dead. And so it makes you think that she might be a suspect, a genuine suspect of the situation. Which is weird, because, like, you and I le never legitimately thought she was. Yeah, like, even never. after that revelation, we were like, yeah, no, she didn't do it. Well, I don't, I don't know what it is about you and me that we're like, yeah, no, she's just cheating on her husband and that's it. <laughs> but I, I think we were just like, that's too obvious. Yeah, she didn't hate him. Uh, she resented, she resented uh, the fact that he was getting into his work and being more reclusive and that she couldn't go out and, and see her friends and party, that they just went different directions. Even uh, the help, Mrs. Rourke, who is the, the maid of the, of the house, uh, she tells you that, like, there's nothing crazy. They, they never fight or argue, and they seem to get along well. It's just that she wants to to socialize and party and live. Uh, um, and it's not even party like a, a reckless way. Just uh, being she a wants part to socialize. of that lifestyle. She wants to she, socialize. She resents the isolation that being with him creates but not in a, a murderous way like it doesn't it it doesn't lead like i i think if anything she's hurt by the the revelation that uh her partner is just not fit for her but like you're also dealing with i, I don't actually when is this game set i i guess it's set in the 1980s but like it feels older it's set 1982 yeah 1982. is it really yeah, because it, it, it feels like it has very antiquated sort of... It has a very antiquated vibe to me. Like a 1950s, 1960s, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like it... Like she would be more reticent for divorce than the the time would actually imply. 
It's the 1980s. Like, I mean, it, maybe it would still evoke a level of scandal. But, I mean, the 1980s, yeah. that's when, like, divorce rates really start popping off because women get rights and they realize their husbands are shit. So with this revelation, with this revelation, we still felt that she was not the prime suspect, that she right. was a red herring. And there's multiple in this because they want to really, really make you feel like everybody is a suspect. And I, I think that for the most part, they do a pretty good job with this. But uh, I think they do. But like, for whatever reason, we were very keyed in on who wasn't. It was the tone. It was the tone, the way she behaved. She wasn't, um, she wasn't elated. She wasn't bereft with grief, but you could tell with the, the word choices that they were having that she is, you know, she's sad by the loss, but she's not completely broken by it, uh, because they've already drifted apart at that point, but she didn't have any hatred towards him at all. Like there's nowhere that says she disliked him. Yeah, I think there's something that I found frustrating about the game was that, and and maybe I'm just frustrated with myself and and you, where like I felt like I wanted more ambiguity, like I really wanted there to be a moment where you and I were like, oh, I don't know, maybe it's this person, maybe it's that, but we're like, no, it's not Mrs. Robner, no, it's not George Robner, the son who likes to waste money, who's extremely disrespectful. Everyone craps on the son. Uh, and hates the son. We we know that his dad threatened to write him out of the will. And in fact did write him out of the will. But we don't know that yet. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He, he threatened to write him out of the will. He did in fact. We we learn by investigating the scene of the crime that uh, that Mr. Robner had uh, set up to meet with his attorney to change the will and write his son out of it. And it also makes you think that maybe Mrs. Robner also is getting written out. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I, I think both you and I, even before the moment where we encounter George in the secret room where he's finding the will, before that moment, you and I were confident that he had been written out of it because just of how it's written. Like, he's very smug at the uh, the will reading. Well, we played it out. Uh, yeah, but like we, he was smug at the will reading. We we're like, okay, so he was written out of the will. But even then, we were like, that's too obvious. Like yeah. he can't be the murderer. Well, our th our our assessment was that like, yeah, he, uh, the this will is missing, but uh, this new will. But we also felt like that's not the main reason behind this. Uh. That I think that we, we had kind of felt that George, his son, was um, that was a two birds with one stone. That his dad was killed and he hid the will so that he wouldn't get written out of it. But he didn't do the killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just convenient. It, it happened to work in his favor. Yeah, it got further exemplified when you, at a certain point... You can follow the son <laughs> into the dining room where he has himself a snack, a red herring sandwich. Yeah, it is a red herring sandwich. Yeah. You're like, okay, well, it isn't him then. Although everybody's trying to tell you that it probably was him. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. Everyone doth protest too much. Now, the other person in the, in the, the, the scene is Miss Dunbar, which is the... Uh, the secretary and personal assistant to Mr. Robner. And I was wrong about Mr. Uh, Dunbar. Uh, sort of. I, yeah. I was, I think I was, 
again, genre savvy. I'm like, she's probably having an affair with, uh, with, oh Christ, what's his name? Mr. Rubner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was keyed in on the idea that I, I thought Miss Dunbar, just based off of what I've experienced in this sort of story, was having an affair with Mr. Rubner. But I, I was right about the affair, but wrong about the individual with whom she was having it. So Miss Dunbar was the last to see him. She was the one who she she came uh, to the mansion at 1030 that night uh, and immediately made tea for him and and was the last to see him. She gave him his medication and she left and the door was locked from the inside when he died. Uh, and what we learned from her, we don't learn much from her. When talking to her, she just talks about business stuff and, and how he was a really nice guy and and a way that would make you, Nick, particularly think that maybe she's cheating or maybe she's in a romantic affair with Mr. Robner because she, she talked to him fond about him fondly. And um, but there was nothing really besides the fact that she was the last to see him. She gave him the medication. Uh, she gave him the tea that we're like, oh, well, she might have something to do with this. Also, because she's just barely vaguely, you know, related. There's not much going on with her. And uh, and so we thought that maybe there'd be something that would like blow this open. And she might be the one responsible for the uh, murder. She is. She is definitely. Wait, which I actually part of me respects and part of me is frustrated by that decision. Um, in that it makes sense. Like, literally, the, the game at no point asks you to believe in ridiculous things. It doesn't. Like, your brain wants to. Like, it very badly wanted something stupid and convoluted to be the way he died. There's but no not, convolutedness. No, it's just, like, a reasonable... She gave him the tea. The tea was poisoned. He drank the tea. He died. That was it. Like, that's what happened. Like, that that is... They did more to this, though, because they did hide some evidence. And there is some... uh, There there is some other things that are a part of the foul play. But for the murder specifically, it is what it is. Like, it's just straightforward. She was the last person to give him anything. And she happened to have a medication that we found in her medicine cabinet... Uh, low blow which did not jive with other medications and she just slipped it to him well here's the thing um the game actually it a- actively says to you that you must find uh the reason for the murder the the medium within which the murder you know happens what did they kill them with and also proof of those things you need to have proof of the murder you need to have proof of the motive um, and what was interesting was that in the feelies, they have interviews with these characters. And for instance, you know, Miss Dunbar says that when she was making the tea, uh, she went out of the room. She wasn't there when the tea was, was boiling. And she also says that there's a couple characters like George who were downstairs at that time. So you could have still made the connection that maybe George poisoned it when she was out of the room in the teapot, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, she was one of the people that killed him. Uh, there was another person involved, uh, one Mr. Baxter, uh, who was the business partner to Mr. Robner. Uh, we learn in the scene of the crime, there is a notepad and a pencil, and you can do an etching. 
that etching then allows you to uh, read a portion of a memo that he sends to Mr. Baxter that is threatening to pretty much get him kicked out of the company completely. Yeah, because Mr. Baxter is responsible for embezzlement and other nasty things in in the company that Mr. Robner is not fond of. He's also the one who's pushing for this merger and setting it all up to happen, something that Mr. Robner does not want. Uh, And this embezzlement of money, we we learn later on that uh, Mr. Robner has all the proof of this embezzlement. And this is really, Mr. Baxter is the mastermind of this murder right he knows that he's going to be losing the company uh if he like were to have survived and so he had to kill him so that he wouldn't get kicked out of the company and also go to jail for his crimes of embezzlement knowing that mr uh mr robner has proof of this um and so we know that he has the, the 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 means to want to do so we also learn in the scene of the crime that uh, there are muddy footprints that lead out to this balcony. Yeah. Uh, and we so that was the way they got through this because there is a squeaky staircase that when anyone goes up that staircase or down that staircase, it is heard throughout the whole house. And what's great about this is that's actually the case. When anyone goes up or down the stairs, wherever you are inside of the house, you hear it. Which I loved. Yeah, which is also, um, I guess we can talk about this now. Yeah. Uh, that That is the case in Knives Out, which is when we started to get this feel. Like, yeah. it, Knives Out, um, which you tweeted. Uh, why don't you talk about your tweet? So I tweeted out Ryan Johnson, the director and writer of Knives Out, uh, saying, hey, I just played and beat this Infocom adventure game. Uh, deadline and i saw all these parallels to your movie knives out and uh i knew that he was an infocom fan and i was like are there any uh is this true did you get inspiration from the game deadline all he did was just like the tweet that's it (laughs) so i'm guessing that that was a quiet wink you know like wink wink yeah yeah so we we don't have exact confirmation but like it's so eerie like in the in the movie knives out so this is also now a spoiler cast for (laughs) knives out which is a wonderful movie feel free to watch it daniel craig eats scenery like he he eats it like it's a delicacy it's wonderful um but like there's a, a noisy staircase there's a wealthy millionaire who has uh committed suicide under suspicious uh, circumstances recently there, changed his will recently changed his will the son is a primary suspect in that like it is like beat for beat like it ends up doing a lot of uh very different things um with it it goes in its own direction but like you can you can feel the deadlininess in using in the using the balcony outside of the the study the library uh to escape uh, afterwards and to like hide evidence like that's a thing the uh the assistant being the one who quote unquote kills the the you know uh the wealthy person and having to hide some of that evidence uh poisoning them with medication and uh also the fact that the investigator in knives out knives out is last name is uh blanc 
And the creator of this game is Mark Blank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Daniel Craig plays a, a wonderful, a Southern Belle isn't the correct term, but I that's what comes to mind. <laughs> a, a Southern gentleman. There you uh, go. With, with a very wonderful accent uh, named Benoit Blanc. Uh, and Mark Blanc, obviously, as we have stated, uh, made this game. So it, it is. it feels like an homage to Deadline. Which is funny, because I've read, since we played this game, I've read a number, number of articles where they're like, what Agatha Christie novel is Ryan Johnson pulling from? And I'm like, I don't, I don't. I don't think it's any of those. No. I think it's just Deadline. <laughs> Pull in from Deadline. Well, what's great about it also is just that the movie Knives Out, I mean, like, it has these these small little bits and pieces, but, like, in no way is this something that is, like, plagiarized. You clearly can tell that he got some little bits and pieces of information in this because, I mean, even the who done it is very different in Knives Out versus what's in Deadline. But you can tell it's there. That there, there is a very quiet homage to this game that I think I, I think it's clear. And I mean, I guess we're potentially wrong, but it, it is clear from my perspective anyway that he played and enjoyed, and he incorporated it into the story, and he took it in a very different direction that I appreciate. All I have to say to Ryan Johnson is, I'm with you on the love for Infocom games. It's yes. been a genuine joy. Yes, and as a, a podcast where we talk about adaptations, A+. Plus. A+. Plus. A-plus plus adaptation to, to a uh, plus. Deadline. Our opinion matters. <laughs> now I'm just waiting for the, the next Knives Out thing to take place at a costume party, and then I'll know for sure if it's really Infocom inspired. <laughs> yeah, That's... Maybe we could get Ryan Johnson on the podcast, and then we can yeah. uh, have a conversation with him about it. That'd so, Brian great. Johnson, let's talk about Deadline and Infocom games. We're not going to talk to you about yeah. your movies at all. Let's yeah, just screw talk about your Infocom movies. Games. Even though we oh. enjoy them. Um, so, anyways, so we know that Mr. Baxter uh, and Miss Dunbar are the... So, we... we uh, sorry. We're going to go back to the... Um, at the scene of the the crime, right? We saw these muddy footprints that lead out to the balcony into these rose bushes, Right. Uh, so when we go outside, the gardener, Mr. McNabb, a wonderfully Scottish man, a wonderfully Scottish, at a certain point in time, he'll start to get really mad. And you can you like visually see that he's very angry and he's yelling and talking to himself. You ask him what is wrong. And he talks about these holes he found in the rose garden, which happens to be right outside the balcony of the library. And you ask him to show you the holes, and there is where you find the murder weapon. It is a piece of china. You go to analyze it. You take it to be analyzed, which is a thing you can do in this game. And you find out that it has a trace chemical that they don't know what it is. They'd have to, you'd have to be specifically looking for it to understand exactly what it is. So you have to analyze it for low, low blow. Yeah. And we find out that it has low blow in it. Thus... Someone poisoned him. That's how he I just, actually was murder. I don't, like, what I find so hard about this game is that, like, <laughs> like, it felt so obvious to us. But I don't think it was. Like, I yeah. don't think it was that. I think I'm being unfair. But, like, you and I, like, just got it. Like, wh- after being frustrated for a day, 
Which we were frustrated, but we were like, I feel like Lobolo has to be involved in the murder somehow. We think Miss Dunbar did it. We don't know how. Uh, like, we were frustrated because we didn't know how to get to the conclusion to this success. But, like, we understood what happened for the most part. Like, the only thing I think we didn't know in that first four hours of the game was that Mr. Baxter was involved. We were suspicious he was involved because of his uh, illicit work in the company. But there wasn't any clear connection between him and the murder. And there still technically isn't. Like, he's more of an accessory to the murder than he is an active agent in it. He's the mastermind behind this. Yeah, yeah. He thought through it. He manipulated uh, Miss Dunbar into it by forming a relationship with her. But, like, he didn't do it. Yeah. She is the gun. He he pointed the she, he pointed her in the right direction and pulled her trigger. Yeah, he's far more nefarious in that regard. And uh, yeah, so we we know now what killed him. So that very much implicates Miss Dunbar, right? Yeah, and we have also this uh, this etching of a memo from Mister Robner to Mister Baxter, implicating Mister Baxter into some shady dealings. Yeah. At noon in the game time, that's when the the uh, the attorney shows up and gets everybody together to read the will and shows that nothing has changed, that the will didn't get changed like we believed it would. And so George is excited. He's he's elated and smug as all get out. Unless, of course, you you show him uh, the was it the note, the calendar. If you show him the calendar ahead of time, it changes his behavior in the will reading. Yeah. In the library, in the calendar, there is a, a date. It says, you know, meet with my attorney and write George out of the will. I don't know if it says write George out of the will. I think it says write a new will. Right. No, I think it... I don't recall it being that explicit. Maybe it is. Just write a new will. But if you show that to George, he gets a little nervous. And... He after the will gets read, he's like, I, I got to go get some stuff done. And he immediately leaves. If you don't show it to him yet, he just kind of hangs around. It's just chill. Um, So he runs off to the library and disappears. So now if you get a ladder and this is another puzzle, Nick, another puzzle. There are puzzles in this game. There are puzzles, but they don't feel like puzzles. I guess is the issue is that they're they problem don't... solving. They're just problem yeah. solving. Um, so you get a ladder to the balcony and enter from the the balcony area. And if you do that before he enters the library, you will see him. He doesn't see you because you're outside. You will see him move a book on the bookshelf in the library that opens up a secret room. And then you have to wait an amount of time because he is trying to crack the safe. Right, which is something you only discover after you followed him in and then, like, he immediately runs away without opening a safe, which you find. You have to wait an amount of time uh, to let him open the safe and then uh, find him with that thing. Now, theoretically, you can miss the window where he is holding it red-handed and then search him for it, which is a key term in the uh, in the feelies, in the manual. But... 
uh, we we didn't do it that way. We just were like, we're going to wait for an amount of time and then run down there. And if it didn't work, we restored and then ran down there again. I don't think we ever use the search person for thing function ever. No, no. Um, even though there are times where it might be useful. Yes. Um, we, we didn't always find the, the moment where these certain key terms were beneficial, which is another thing that I, I personally found frustrating. And, and it's just because of how we approached the run and how we approached the game. Uh, but, like, I, I, never in the Zork games did I feel like there was a moment where I was... There was a term that I should be using, but I'm not. And I'm like, when does this matter? You know what I mean? Like... The special keys, key terms, uh, you know, where is and name uh, the person. You know, you can ask people where other people are and uh, search somebody for something in particular. But the bulk majority of the commands were used. And I think that those other ones that we didn't use were more to, to help people in alternate paths for solving these puzzles, which was I think was actually really interesting. I, I think it's interesting. I just remember being frustrated by it because my brain my brain was like, okay, so it said we have we have these things, we have these options, so all of them are going to matter. At yeah. some point I'm going to have to ask someone to like you know, show me something on their person. But that wasn't true. It wasn't it's not show me something on your person. It is show me something. And we had to use that. See, I was in the opposite situation because when we got stuck the next day, I spent my time looking at that manual and all those commands that they had given us that were different or differentiated itself from Zorik. And it's like, how would these apply to the things that we are stuck with? And the big one that we were stuck with was the gardener saying the holes that he found. And we're like, oh, okay, we'll go to the Rose Garden and look for the holes. And we couldn't find them. Which I also think is a little dumb. That's a teensy stupid. Like... If he's complaining about holes in the garden, even if, no matter how thick that garden is, like, it should be apparent to us, like, when we go over. But, like, you have to go to him and be like, hey, show me that thing that makes you mad. Yeah, show like, me the holes. Because otherwise, you um, you just mess up the garden, and then you, you permanently ruin it. Which is interesting, and I, I, I think... You're right in that, like this game is more dynamic, in uh, in a sense, like it's more dynamic in that you can change the behavior of individuals of NPCs in a way that I don't think happens in the Zork games, um, or at least not nearly as extensively as in the Zork games. Um, and you also can change uh, whether or not it's even possible to solve the puzzle because you and I we learned that there were holes in the garden and then we just kept traipsing through the garden and like ruining that for us. <laughs> like we were like, uh, where are these holes? And we couldn't find them because we had sullied the evidence. So George Robner is in this, this secret vault with a safe. And in that safe, once he has opened up the safe is a will, the changed will right when you confront him he curls up into a ball and cowers right yeah but there's also something else in the safe and that is the the evidence that shows that mr baxter was embezzling money 
and uh, committing crimes within the company. That's the real thing. What was what I love so much about this is at this point now, we have found the murder weapon and we have found multiple causes, right? This new will shows that George could have done it, right? Him tr knowing where the secret room was to get this will and destroy it to prove that uh, so that he can keep his inheritance. And also the fact that he had an opportunity to poison the tea before it was even served, it could make you think that maybe he did do this. And you can accuse him, arrest him, and it would say go through the trial process and that he gets, you know, that he gets uh, convicted for the, the murder, but it'd also be like, mm, that's not the real ending. Yeah, I, I wish the red herring sandwich didn't exist. I liked I think it. I, I mean, I thought it was cute, but again, like, there was a moment where I wanted there to be other reasonable suspects, and I just never felt like that was true. Like, Miss Miss Robner, regardless of having a motive, never felt like a reasonable suspect. If they made her seem more threatening or more unhappy, then that would have made it more easy. I think they wanted to give you... Uh, a more clear cut choice. Like this, it wasn't like Clue, yeah. like uh, the the Tim Curry movie, yeah. where like it, all of those endings, all of the alternative endings make sense, and like are like yeah, no, I could see all of those people having been guilty. At no point did I feel like anyone other than the two people we suspected were guilty. Well, George could have. George could but have. we we wrote him off immediately. I know, but that was just our gut instincts and also kind of reading into the writing. Um, but also at this point, you could also accuse and arrest Mrs. Robner. Uh, she was having an affair and, you know, <clears throat> that sort of thing could also implicate that that she would be written out or she thought she was going to be written out. So she decided to poison him and get inheritance. You can also do that. And that's the only two that we can do at this moment. But those papers, you can then show those to Mr. Baxter. And he's like, you've got nothing on me. He, he's very combative. Yeah. He's like, this is all aware with the, with the, um, with the shareholders. <clears throat> it's perfectly fine. It's not a big deal. Um, and then you show Miss Dunbar, not Miss Dunbar. Yeah. Miss Dunbar the report the analyzed report about the uh the <clears throat> the tea stuff and she becomes unhinged she gets really nervous she's she's shaking and she's pacing around in the the room and and eventually she runs outside to have a smoke and mr baxter also leaves if you follow her she gets shaky. She goes to pull out a lighter for the cigarette and out drops a ticket. Mm -hmm. And you ask her about this ticket. You pick it up. You can show it to her. And she's like, this ticket shows or proves that she was with Mr. Baxter on the night of the murder. He had said in the interview in the feelies that he went out for an opera. He was alone. Uh, the show ended at 10 o'clock at night. She said she was out with friends. She got home at 10.30. This tied her with him because it was the same show that he saw. 
and she says, I was with Mr. Baxter, um, and he drove me home uh, after everything was done. You show that to Mr. Baxter, and he says, I called a cab. She went home alone. This was where this moment hit me so hard. We, when we had done this, we hadn't um, gotten it completely straightened out where we could arrest them, or we didn't think so at this point. She leaves to go talk to Mr. Baxter alone, and she comes back, and we follow her around, thinking maybe she's going to do something that's going to help us get what we need to arrest her. And she goes into her room and asks to be left alone, and we do. The moment we go down the stairs, you hear a bang, a loud gunshot, and she has killed herself. Which is actually really, that that struck me as really sad. Yeah. Like, she's a murderer, but like, <laughs> I still felt like, oh shit, <laughs> this poor woman. She felt guilty, and it was a genuine, like a visceral reaction to that in just words. Uh, you know, when you talked about Zorik and when you saw the words, you were painting the scene in your mind. I very vividly saw this moment of going down the rickety stairs. And the moment that she heard that you went down those stairs, that's when she decided to do it. She was waiting for that moment to, to be alone. And how striking that was. How And how then everybody, all the NPCs rush by you and go up the stairs to to see what happened it was it was such a striking scene it was it was so vivid in my memory and it was such a emotional just reaction and it got even elevated more because when we reloaded it to uh to finally do it the right way we know that after she meets with mr baxter He's waiting outside the mansion grounds by the lake, like smoking a cigarette and looking at the sunset, you know, like just in, and he's smirking. He's waiting for this gunshot to happen. Yeah. You know, to be like, I'm free and clear. Happy as can be. And so you show him the ticket, you arrest him. You have now that she did in fact poison him that he also set her up to do this so that they both were responsible for it and you save the day. Uh, you can, you, so you can get them arrested before she kills herself, which is fantastic because that was a really shocking thing for me. Yeah, I will say that like that portion of the game is far more evocative. Like That's the, the part that my brain holds on to. Like, it's the last third of the game that I really remember, that I, I remember as vividly as I remember the Zork games. Um, the rest feels very, also the library for whatever reason, like I have a very clear memory of what the library looks like. We spent the most time there. Yeah, that's true. But like the rest of the building feels like just sort of vacuous to me. Like I, 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 maybe the living room. George's record collection. Oh, that's just weird. I, I liked it, but it's weird where he has this uh, record collection that randomly plays just like polka and also rock music. And, and like, yeah, like Gregorian chants and then like just like static and like crazy noise. Yeah, that he's this weird, eccentric, moody person. His room stood out for me. Um, and the yeah, the 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 sitting room where they read the will. 
that stands out. I, uh, the bedrooms for most people didn't stand out for me. Like the, the main bedroom or Miss Dunbar's bedroom or Mrs. Rourke's bedroom. Like those things didn't stand out. The closets absolutely didn't. Even the bathrooms. That was kind of the point, I think. That those things aren't standing out because they weren't really important to the story. The library stands out big time. Yeah. And again, I think I'm just holding it to a Zorkian standard, which is potentially unfair. This is a narrative. Yeah, it, it, it's a narrative. And like, it's a narrative that wants you that is trying to very clearly tell you what is and isn't important but like i have a very i have a very clear in my brain i have a very clear understanding of the space in zork yeah like i i i know where um in relationship to the house the rainbow and the river are and where the impassable mountains are and where under the house the troll is like I have this sense of space, and it, it's there in my brain. Like I can think of it. I the house feels like disparate parts. Like yes, they are you know connected rooms. It's a cohesive building, but like most of it isn't memorable. So I remember you know that you know somewhere in the upper like eastern no the western half of the building you have the library there you go what was crazy nick was crazy is that like so i mapped it of course and i think that there's that that says something because i remember the house vividly i know where everything is i can still tell you right now based on you give me a location i can tell you how to get to another location right now just off the top of my head it it's it stuck because i did the mapping i think that what what happened there for you was that in zork one i was doing the mapping and for you, you still really tried hard to get a sense of direction. And from there on out, you were like, John's doing the mapping. I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to take that information and throw it right out the window now because I have the person to tell me where to go. Yeah, but I still feel like in Zork 2 and Zork 3, I have that sense of space. I mean, a little less than Zork 1. Um, and I think it's getting a little worse as you are no, no longer in the same state as me. And I can't look over at the map and see what you're doing. That's true as well. Uh, we don't have, uh, with Starcross, it becomes very wonky, um, which we'll talk about later. But, I love yeah, I, yeah, no, Starcross is great. I Deadline, I just, uh, part of what, like, really stuck a thing in my brain was how evocative it was how attractive that was as like a puzzle like the re the relationship between the loud room and the dam was something that i loved yeah. uh, and Spatial remember puzzles. very yeah i remember very vividly that didn't matter so much here uh, there was an upstairs and a downstairs which makes sense because it's i'm just being a jerk is that's it see what <laughs> happened here for me was that like it was the people and how they moved. So, like, hearing people move through the stairs, that was super evocative to me. Uh, it felt like it felt like people were actually milling about in this place, kind of going about their day, waiting for this will reading. That it was a living space. Like, it was a dynamic space. Exactly. When you confront George and now he moves around, when Mrs. Robner gets that phone call and then immediately runs upstairs to go into her room to talk privately. Hmm. That was, those things really stuck and, and the suicide and then 
all of the NPCs just rushing by. Like, even though in one turn they are coming in, the next turn they are going out, the next turn they are going up. Uh, you know, still at the same pace, but in my brain, they were bolting to this to this area. All of them were moving there very quickly in my brain. It it had this kinetic nature that was so so evocative to me, and that stuff really made it stick out as being something really interesting and special. Do I think it's perfect? No. Do I think it has its flaws? Wow, does it have a lot of them? You know, I do feel like uh, it's really asking too specific, uh, too specifically of the player to do very certain things, and it gates events off by that timing. Um, and I think that 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 is a problem. But I just I I very much enjoyed it when we when we start to talk about it, and I look back on it because it has been some time since we played it. I look back incredibly fondly of it, uh, it, just because those those strong emotional moments that that I did not expect to happen, and when it did, it it was wild. Yeah, I don't. So I, I I'll say this: I don't think that there has been a bad Infocom game yet. Yeah, even Zork Three, which I think both of us were a little disappointed in. Yeah. I, I I think that was my first Zork game. I'd be like, you know what? This is pretty fun. Like, the only reason I was frustrated by it was because it was the third, and I was anticipating that it would be better than two and one. That Zork 3 didn't end on a note that felt final or fulfilling in comparison. And that was like Zork 3. It just it, it didn't hit the way that Zork 1 or 2 did. It didn't evoke the imagination. Yeah. So I, I complain about Deadline, but I, I think Deadline is a great game. I think all of these have been. Yeah. I, I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. I think more than I have in most video games. Like, I think there are a few video games that I've played that I've enjoyed quite as much as these. I think Breath of the Wild might be, not that that's an unpopular opinion, uh, but Breath of the Wild might be eking these out a bit. Um, but I mean, like, it has every advantage <laughs> that it could possibly have. You know, I really like uh, a lot of the more recent Switch games. Um, when I was a kid, I was fond of Halo. Like, those were good experiences, but these have been stellar. And, like, they are they are stellar with less resources. <laughs> I've always talked, I've always talked about how um, that, that text can be a, a really great way to to engage a player by having them have to fill in those gaps and and how a text parser is so important to engage the player with the software and and it, it does a really really good job but it also just there are there are segments when when we it's hard to explain when we have to engage ourselves our fingers on the keyboard typing out commands with the software and it responds to us very directly as if we are having a conversation with it right it, it, it does something so it so intimate and when a game like deadline does something really striking like like actual suicide uh and 
and these sorts of things, when you have invested yourself, when you have been engaged in that world and you're talking with the software and it does something so visceral and unexpected, uh, it really does have a profound emotional response from the player. And I don't know how a person could play that and not feel that, you know? Yeah, no, I, I get that entirely. It's really interesting because I feel like with visual video games, uh, I, I think there's more interactivity, theoretically, and the the controllers... The, the, at some point, you just sort of blank, right? Where you're playing and there's the muscle memory involved. But there's something weird about the tactility of typing in text that... Uh, is engaged like there's a there's a distance but it's an interesting distance i don't know how to put it like i really like typing west and hitting enter like there's something I know wonderful exactly about that i've cracked that code so think about it like this for a second Nick. okay so like when you have a controller in your hands right and you're using the thumbsticks to look around and move and you have these buttons to control the hands in a first person game or the, you know making a person jump right they're they're, they're very they're actually very simple inputs, you know, uh, pushing the right trigger pull uh, of a controller pulls the trigger of a gun. Pressing the A button makes you jump, you know, uh, but those things are very simple. They're very uh, unified, but they also feel kind of like a natural extension towards the human body. You can relate to it very easily uh, towards or translate it to a human movement. Um, and, with a, with a text game, you don't have that. But what's interesting about it is that it is it is uh, foreign enough. There's a distance enough between uh, the, the tactility of something natural that we would understand. It's, it's, it is a little more unnatural in that regard. But because it is, it makes that player engage more. All right? They have to put a little more effort into it. It is a slight inconvenience in how we interact with things. Because you not only have to type stuff, but you also have to figure out what you need to type. And and because of that minor inconvenience, that minor distance between what we consider to be a natural interaction, uh, you actually are dedicating more brain power to it. And because you do that, you become far more invested. When you get invested, you become affected by the events that happen. And in, in Deadline, sadly, those events are, are tragic and sad. Uh, but in games like Zorik, you become invested with, uh, with, with the puzzles and with little things like in Zorik 2 and the robot puzzle, when we accidentally get it sucked up by an electromagnet and it dies and you're like, oh, and it even gives a death sequence that's similar to your own death sequence when it describes it. But you were like, that is funny. That is novel. That's a little sad. <laughs> Because you're connected to those things, but it, it elicits these very strong reactions because the way that the game presents itself to you, uh, it does so in creative and novel ways. It's not just text. It's how that text is presented. Whereas in a, a game like Call of Duty or in Mario, like the way that it presents itself is is clear because it has these visuals that go with it. It presents itself through visuals. And it's hard hard to 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 um, circumnavigate your expectations. Yeah, there's there's something like I have I've almost been trained now that every time I hit the enter key, 
or often when I hit the enter key, there will be a dose of oxytocin that something will fire in my brain. You want to know what it, it says. And that something happens. Yeah. And you're like, holy shit, yes, I've solved it. Like, now I'm just like a drug addict for the enter key. You, and you see that long text, and you're like, yes, something happened. Something big happened. The text is longer. Uh, I was working on, like, my thesis work recently, and every time I hit the enter key, my brain went, is, it, is this it? Yeah, because <laughs> there's no right? response from the software. There's no response. You wanted a response, and you didn't get it. How interesting that is. I'm sorry, Nick. I'm sorry. I went on a tangent. I No, I think this is productive, because this is. I think that is one of the great joys uh, of these games, like it's just, I I really love typing. <laughs> yeah. Like in a way that I don't think I've ever enjoyed typing. Like I'm not the worst. I I I know I'm not as good as you are, but I'm not the worst when it comes to typing. Your spelling um, is terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm I, kidding. It's I'm not kidding. my spelling. It's more of I know how to spell. It's sometimes my fingers get screwed, uh, but. It, you know, I'm not as accurate as you are, but I'm I'm more accurate than a lot of folks I know. True. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, I, I've never had like a pleasure in in typing that I have in these games. I mean, I also sometimes get frustrated because I'm like, why isn't this a thing I can interact with? Which we'll talk about in another episode of this. Yeah. But uh, more often than not, it's just like all of a sudden typing words is just this wonderful pleasure train. It really is. Yeah. And making the maps understand anything spatially, you know? Yeah. All of it, every component of it is, is really fun, which you wouldn't think. Like, people, when they talk about these games, they don't necessarily always have very positive opinions, especially the early Infocom games. But every single one so far, I've felt good about. Like, I've. Even if I've been frustrated and angry at some point. Um, in the end, I have mostly positive feelings about all of these. It's that by design. That's the nature of an adventure game. When when you're trying to understand a puzzle and you're not understanding it, um, and it is, and it's the only game genre that actively tells you stop playing, come back another take a day. break, take a break, yeah. um, and also very much actively says play with other people. Like talk about this with other people and engage in conversation with them. Nick, the deadline was a fun game. I enjoyed it a lot. So yeah, Nick, we we talked about deadline and it is a really enjoyable game. Uh, it may not be your favorite, and that's okay. But it's uh, not my favorite of the Infocom games, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. So we will be back with more of the literally pixels podcast. We're going to talk about <laughs> the next game in the series, which is Starcross. Uh, again, these are bonuses that get interspersed throughout to help fill in the gaps if we have moments when we can't read our book in time to record, because that'll happen. We have some big ones. Uh, if you want to enthuse about text adventures or about games that you love in general, you can always reach us at literate pixel podcast at gmail.com you can also reach us on our instagram which is instagram.com slash literate pixel podcast uh and you can also reach out to me on twitter at bogus meat factor or uh come watch us on twitch mondays wednesdays fridays and saturdays 
8 p.m. and uh, 9 p.m. respectively. Uh, yeah, specifically our inter- interactive fiction Friday is on Friday. If you want to go with us on this journey, Friday nights, twitch.tv slash bogus meat factory, Friday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern time. We go and play through specifically Infocom games, and we would love to have you. We'd love to hear from you, and I would love to talk game design and, and your thoughts about just the gaming as a medium to create people to allow a connection between people and software. I'd love to hear it. All right, Nick, that's it. No bits on these ones either. We don't do bits. <laughs> this no, is no bitless. Bit. No bits. Ghiblies, but no bits. Okay. Well, with all the Ghiblies in the world, I love you, John, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a wonderful night, everybody. Thank you all for listening very, very much. Take care. Bye. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.